Welcome to How I Wrote This, where we go behind the scenes to demystify how great papers come to be. I'm Karen Winterick, Professor of Marketing at Penn State's Smeal College of Business and co-editor of the Journal of Marketing Research. I want you to do a little exercise with me. Imagine yourself in a clothing store, say, shopping for a new shirt. As you peruse the different styles, do you reach out and touch the clothing as you walk past? Perhaps subconsciously, but then stopping for that particularly soft or smooth shirt. Touch is a powerful sense that we use for navigating the world and making assessments. But when it comes to shopping, today so much of it happens digitally, online. This tactility is gone. Or is it? Could it be possible that a virtual hand could impact how you feel about the shirt you're viewing online? Well, that's the question our guests on the show today wanted to answer in their paper, Observing Product Touch, the Vicarious Haptic Effect in Digital Marketing and Virtual Reality, published in the Journal of Marketing Research in 2022. Interestingly, Andrea Webb Longroth, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Iowa, came up with this idea over 10 years ago. But it wasn't until several years later that she and Joanne Peck at the University of Wisconsin picked this idea back up and turned it into a full-fledged research project. So what was sitting in the file drawer all those years? Well, it turns out some pretty incredible findings. They discovered that seeing a hand touching a product helps people feel like the product is theirs, increasing how much they're willing to pay for the product. Even though they had fascinating initial findings, it wasn't a slam dunk acceptance. Instead, through their collaboration with professors Bill Hedgecock and Yi Shang Zhu, they had to continually innovate to refine the paper into the highly cited research it is today. These innovations, using virtual reality in their studies and demonstrating how hands in social media posts increase engagement, are what made me so curious about the process behind this paper. All right, let's hear what Andrea and Joanne have to share. So, Andrea, going to go ahead and get started with you. VR is in the news now, virtual reality, but it's still relatively new. And I think that you had this idea long before VR was in the headlines. Can you tell me a little bit about how this idea got started? Absolutely. So this project actually started in the first year of my PhD program, uh, which was many years ago. I wrote a, a seminar paper in my marketing strategy seminar, uh, and the paper was entitled How Observing Haptic Experiences Influences Product Evaluations. And after that first year seminar, uh, I put the paper aside and we really didn't, um, you know, keep going with the project. Um, it wasn't until I started my uh, first job as an assistant professor here, here at the University of Iowa that I picked the project back up. And so it was uh, an idea that, you know, was always there, but we didn't really invest too much in. And it was really, again, in 2017 when we started to think about this idea more intensely and pursue it. And, and just to add to that, so I had done work on haptics or the sense of touch, and I had been invited by a few companies to come talk so Procter & Gamble has a sensory summit, and they had me as their haptic person, and Gillette had me out, and they had all asked me a similar question, which is, you know, what if a viewer sees someone else touch a product? What effect does that have? And they were thinking about digital media, and totally independent from that, Andrea wrote this first 
your paper. So when she started sharing this idea with me, I just thought that's great because I know there's a huge contribution that could be made with this. So it's sort of like coming from two different sides that we ended up working on this eventually. That's a great paper, I think, right? Well, we know it's a great paper now, you know, as we can see it being published. But when we're starting at that early idea stage, Andrea, you know, developing this theoretically, there's a contribution to be made. Joanne, you're seeing it from the company practical substantive side. Hey, the companies really have a need and interest here. So you've got both the theoretical and the substantive going for you already, right? When you're developing this or when you're yeah. pulling it back out, I guess, Andrea. And so I want to go back and just clarify a little bit, Andrea, what exactly is vicarious touch or vicarious, you know, we the paper terms of the vicarious haptic effect. Can you tell us just kind of, you know, for the layperson out there, what is this vicarious haptic effect? So vicarious touch very simply is seeing a hand touch a product in some sort of digital content, right? So we use actual touch with our own hands all of the time. But then there was this question of what are the effects of seeing someone else's hand reach out and touch a product? And might it produce similar effects to actual touch? So when we're talking about this vicarious haptic effect, we, what we really wanna know is does seeing this virtual touch affect people's sense of ownership of their own bodies, of this virtual hand, of the product, and how might it affect product evaluations? Gotcha. Okay, so this the, the core difference here is, yes, there's literature on touch, and Joanne, I want to come back to you on that, but the, the novelty is I'm not touching it. I'm just watching someone else touch a product, and that can have the same or very similar effects as if I were touching it myself. So, Joanne... Can I say you're the touch expert, right? Um, Joanne is the touch expert. Sure. Uh, you were you were PNG's you know haptic person. So, how did you see this when Andrea wrote this paper in your seminar? What? How did you see this as being different from all the existing work that you've done, and of course that you know about in the literature? Well, you know it's interesting because most of the other work is either a person actually exploring a product with their own hands. So actually touch versus not touch, what are the effects of product touch? Or it was more, how do we compensate for an inability to touch? So for example, imagining touch or giving someone a clear texture and seeing if that compensates for actual touch. But there was nothing in the literature on looking at hands and sort of the active nature of hands interacting with a product and how people transport themselves into that hand and say, hey, that feels like it's my hand. So there is nothing on body ownership or viewing touch from that perspective. So this is a little bit different than what's been done in literature before. Joanne, how did you go about creating some of the stimuli? Well, it's kind of interesting because the first stimuli we used were courtesy of Andrea and her husband, Mitchell. So a lot of the videos they made themselves and they're wow. actually pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, it was impressive. So Andrea has we a side job here in like, you know, video <laughs> production, I guess. <laughs> hand model. Hand model. Think there we go. Hand model. Yep. Hand model. <laughs> um, and actually they were really good. But when we got to the VR context, one of our co-authors, Bill Hedgecock, he actually had a contact where we could pay to have this retail environment developed. So that was extremely helpful because we didn't have the knowledge to do that. And it was kind of funny because 
Andrew and I was re was reminding me of this when we saw the sort of the first iteration of this retail store. A lot of it was great. But then she said, you know, have you noticed that the mannequins are naked? <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my gosh, we got to fix that. So we had to kind of go back and forth a little bit. Um, one of the other issues is that when you had the VR headset on, you could look around at this great retail store. If you look down at your own body, it was kind of odd. It sort of looked like a blob. And we're just like, I feel like that's not really that realistic. So we ended up having them alter that too. So when people looked down, they didn't see any parts of the body. So the end product we thought was very externally valid and rigorous, but the getting there took a little bit of iterating back and forth with the developer. Yeah. So fascinating that you actually had you know, this developer, thanks to Bill, um, you were able to get this very realistic stimuli developed. But also with that, which I'm sure helped to take the paper you know, through the publication process, uh, or I should say through the review process into publication, but there's more than just kind of the stimuli, the store, the product in the hand in front of you. With VR, you have to think about everything around you and how it looks and which way you're looking. And so there's a lot more going into it. Yeah. And actually the advantage of, you know, having this developer developing our virtual reality store from the ground up is that we were able to populate the scene with anything that we wanted to include in it. And so we were able to devise what the retail store looked like. We wanted to make it a store that anyone felt like they could be shopping at. So we, we wanted it to be a really gender neutral store. Uh, we had it in a sports kind of sporting goods kind of context where, um, you know, the apparel was athletic apparel, both kind of men's and women's. Um, so we wanted people to really feel as if they could actually be shopping in this store. And then the other neat piece of this was that we created this VR environment with different versions to be able to test our, our vicarious haptic effect, right? We wanted to know whether or not seeing the virtual hand in VR touching a product made a difference. And so because of that, this developer was able to create these different versions so that we could run the study um, and test these different versions of the virtual environment. Gotcha. So can I add to that? Of course. So one, so one of one, one of the so we had a the touching condition, but we also had to have a hand no touching because people could say, well, it's just seeing a hand; it's not the hand touching the product. And we had to make sure the time on screen of the hand was the same in both conditions. And then we had the cursor condition, which is what a lot of companies are doing using now. So we had those three conditions developed. Okay, so lots to think about going in there, and one of the key things that you know, I might mention later, but in your paper, you really specify you're manipulating the within the VR context. It's not, you know, as some research has done, the use of VR versus not VR. It's within VR, is there a hand touching the product? Is there a hand, but not touching a product? And is there just a cursor, which you said is kind of maybe the default uh, for many companies currently? So lots of Lots of work there in terms of the nuance, I think, in designing that stimuli. So, Andrea, where did you get started with this? So you, you worked on this paper, you know, years ago in the seminar. You brought it back out as an assistant professor. And then when you were first ready to submit, where did you go? So like many articles, uh, this article was no different in that it had a journey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that to put it kindly? We all have journeys. <laughs> we are all on our own journeys. Um, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, it's better that we're laughing about this and not crying, okay? Yeah. We're just oh. laughing about the journey. We, we could easily exactly. be crying. <laughs> we probably did cry at some right. points. I'm pretty sure we did. We cry, only laugh when the journey anyway. is over for this paper. <laughs> and it got, it got, yes, it got in. So, right. Yeah. So we first submitted this manuscript to JM's uh, special issue on new technologies. Um, we figured this, this paper really had an interesting managerial bend to it. We saw the managerial implications of it. And so that's really why we thought that special, special issue might be a good option for this paper. Uh, we were swiftly rejected. Um, and it, it, was, it was very quick uh, and there was kind of no, no question about it. And in hindsight, I think one of the reasons for this was really due to kind of our own miscalibration, maybe with what that special issue was looking for and how we had positioned the paper. And so I think that, that we just didn't kind of fully understand maybe what they were what they were going for. And so this was also really a growth opportunity for us to think more about um, how to make the, pe the paper better and stronger. Well, that's a fantastic way to look at it, right? Especially when you're on the other side of things. Um, but I mean, every review process really is and should be a growth opportunity. And I think it's just one kind of, you know, thing to think about. You're saying for the JM special issue, part of it may have been just what they were looking for in that special issue. And so I think a lot of times people think, oh, special issue, you know, this is going to be easier. And oftentimes... No, they get a lot of submissions, right? It's very competitive, more competitive than submitting to the, you know, any standard issue of a given journal. And also it has to align. It has to truly fit with the topic. So you understood, you know, you could see it as a, as a growth process. Joanne, what was your reaction um, to this rejection as well, I guess? Um, and kind of what, um, what, what, what <laughs> yeah, where'd you go from there? <laughs> I, I would say that, I guess if you're in the field long enough, you you get rejections. Um, I was personally, I thought it was a really good fit. Uh, maybe we miscalibrated, but it seemed to fit with new technology. Um, and then what the editor said, the JM group said is, you know, maybe you should just submit it to a regular JM, you know, maybe because special issues, as you say, sometimes they have so many submissions. So we submitted it to a regular issue and it I don't think quite as promptly, but it got rejected again. So um, after the second rejection, you know, one of the things I think that we really, it's hard to do it, sort of step back and really look at it from what the reviewer's feedback is, because clearly we weren't communicating the way we thought we were with that kind of feedback. So it was extremely discouraging, and I think we were both sort of surprised because we could see it fitting so well. So it, it really caused us to take a step back and try to make the paper even stronger. And then the next step was uh, the JMR submission. Okay. So, you know, again, perspective, hindsight, right? It's a little bit, you can see things a little more positively. But yeah, Joanne's like, you know, it wasn't that shocking initially because we got rejected and that happens. We all get rejected. But then you're saying, well, they they said, you know, there's a chance, uh, like, you know, encouragement to resubmit. And so taking that, that you know, opportunity and still getting rejected hurts maybe a bit more in that case. But you could see the good, you saw, saw the fit, right? Like that, I think, Joanne, you said from the beginning, knowing that there's a question, a desire from companies to understand this, that fit there with the managerial. Andrea, uh. One thing that I'll add to that, too, is that 
you know, in the second time of going to the main issue of, of JM, all three reviewers, the entire review team recommended rejection, which they told us and they were very, you know, open about. So I think that's also, you know, a challenge, right, as, a, as an editor. If the entire review team says reject, you know, that's a pretty strong signal. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, their, their decision wasn't surprising, right? And it really did, like Joanne said, it made us kind of stop and rethink how we were positioning this paper, rethink the theoretical contribution of it. And we um, changed it dramatically from there. Gotcha. So yeah, that importance of being able as an author, and it's hard to do, but stepping back and saying, maybe... They've got a point, and the onus is on us to make sure, you know, that we as authors are conveying what we think is so important about this paper and doing it justice. And maybe we weren't doing that like we thought we were. And it's, again, it's challenging to step back and take that perspective, but it sounds like you really did that when you submitted to JMR next. So what were some of the adjustments that you you made? I think uh, there's some Instagram data, which I'm guessing was probably well-received by the review team, but you tell me. You know, what changes did you make? Kind of how did you get the idea for this Instagram data? Yes. So this is one of the changes that we made to the manuscript before submitting to JMR. Um, so one of our collaborators, Yi Xiangju, he had the really brilliant idea of demonstrating this phenomenon with actual brand data. Um, and so he said, well, you know, we see this phenomenon occurring all of the time on Instagram. You don't have to scroll very far on Starbucks Instagram feed to see them showing pictures with their coffee cups in people's hands. And so we had yes. this idea. We, it's pumpkin we had... spice latte season. I can just see that hand <laughs> in that pumpkin spice latte right now. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, it, it's, it's so obvious, right, when you're looking at these images. And so he had the great idea. What if we, you know, scrape a bunch of brands' Instagram images and have them coded for whether or not they're showing vicarious touch? And so, you know, he, he kind of took this upon himself and he gathered a you know, massive data set of images and we did exactly that. And we wanted to look at, okay, how does seeing hands touching products or how does vicarious touch affect engagement with brands' uh, social media content? And I just want to add that I was a bit skeptical. Okay, oh. so I, I wasn't 100% convinced. I, I now say that I was totally wrong, but it really <laughs> took the paper in a different direction because all of the other the videos and the VR was active touch. So a hand actively moving. And this was just still images. So part of that was, yeah, it makes it way broader in a very good way, but I wasn't convinced we'd necessarily get the same effect. So my first is like, do we really want to take the paper and make it this broad? Because sometimes I get into trouble trying to do that with papers. So trying to figure out, you know, how big can it be to add a contribution, but not so big. So I was just a little skeptical we should put that in. But of course, in hindsight, I'm super happy we did. And, <laughs> you know, the effect was great. So, you know, it wasn't like it was a slam dunk right away. We did discuss it a little bit before we added this. So, yeah, yay to Yishan. He had a great idea and it worked perfectly. I mean, I was going to say, how excited were you when you tested this with the real data and saw the effect? You're like, look, it's real. Not that you didn't believe it was real before, but for me, at least, when I get it in the lab, it's like, okay, yay. But then when I get it in the field or in secondary, it's like, no, this is for real now, right? Like, this is really happening. So 
I was thinking you'd be really excited. Joanne was like, eh, hold on. <laughs> but that makes sense. I'm the it's kill a, joy. Yeah, it's a fair point, right? Because we do, it's often like, well, if we open up this kind of can of worms and then the reviewers are going to ask all these questions about, is it moving versus not? Is, is this what drives the effect? Is that what drives the effect? And so there is some concern in maybe opening it, broadening it, and just raising more questions in the review process. But I guess that's not what happened. Uh Andrea, I'm just curious, how did you uh, or you and Ishang pick the four brands that you had in there, right? I think it was like two coffee brands and a couple other things. So we really, uh, we wanted to intentionally select brands that had some sort of product that could be handheld, right? We weren't selecting, you know, financial institutions. Um, of course, right? They're not going to be Money, showing... money, money, money. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they could. They, they could show that, right? Yeah, but Fair. No uh, one has cash these days. That would be irrelevant. <laughs> uh, but no, no, we really did want these handheld products because we wanted to, if there was an effect of vicarious touch, we wanted to be able to, det to detect it. And so um, we selected brands and we wanted to select brands um, also that had products across various product categories. So, you know, we used Samsung that had, um, you know, technological devices that might be shown in hands. Um, we used the um, the Instagram feed from We Are Knitters, which is um, has a lot of you know yarn and different types of um, tactile products uh, that were shown in hands. So uh, we selected those four brands and, and scraped all of their data. Okay, yeah, I, th I mean, I thought it was fascinating, especially that you picked the two. You know, the Samsung very different, right? A, a higher cost, higher involvement product versus you know your coffee. But even that you had two coffee brands that it held for, which might have different brand images. So it really seemed like robust support um, that I could see. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So once you submitted to JMR, Andrea, what was the review process like? I'm sure there were some hiccups or no, it was smooth sailing all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually. Pretty much it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, so we were just coming off of, you know, two very quick rejections um, and, and very definitive rejections. Um, so we submitted to JMR, again, with pretty substantial changes to the manuscript. Um, and we received the feedback from the review team at JMR, and we got a regular revision. So this was the first wow. time. Yes. I, we just got to, like, stop and celebrate that, okay? <laughs> I mean, a regular revision. I didn't know that revisions that were not risky happened on the first round. Congrats. I didn't. I didn't either <laughs> I until didn't. this happened. Exactly. <laughs> this was really the first time I had ever received a non-risky revision. Um, usually the revisions that I uh, know about are the risky, 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 like bolded risky and italicized <laughs> risky and ultra risky revisions. <laughs> Um, so this was really, honestly, the first time I'd ever received a flat out revision on a paper. Um, so we did celebrate that, uh, that little win at that point. Um, and the review team was really, honestly, incredibly constructive. They were very fair and they were really helpful in, in helping us think about what the issues were and, and how to move the paper forward. Um, and so they really did highlight a number of issues that still remained kind of both conceptually and empirically with the paper. Um, but they gave us a really clear roadmap for where to move and, and how to improve the work. And I just want to add to that. I feel like they were tough, but fair. So it's nice when you get some direction, right? So it's because we, 
would do whatever we needed to do. And they were just so thoughtful and fair. And I just think I still remember that because that doesn't always happen in the review process. And it was impressive. Right. Yeah. Good. Because you want, I mean, you want the reviews to be, you know, you're, you're willing to do the work at least. Right. And but you want it to be reasonable with some guidance and, and fairly transparent in what's needed. Um, at least that's the ideal. That's what we wish all of the review processes were like, both on the editorial end and the, the author end, of course. So I just wanted to kind of think about, though, to be fair, right, that when you submitted to JMR, you had made a lot of changes after these, you know, two rounds uh, before at JM. And I think one thing to highlight is that you now had these multiple methods in there, right? So you you had... VR, which is still kind of lab, but, uh, you know, a bit, a lot more realistic. You had some of the lab experiments as well. And you now had this Instagram data, which might have helped get that buy-in of the, how real and substantive this effect is kind of from the get-go, right? So seeing things like what can help a paper get that revision, you know, on the on the first round, first submission. And of course, I'm sure you refined the writing and things as well, too, seeing how can you make your your point, your contributions clearer and stand out. Um, so all of those rejections help improve, right? Uh, there's benefit. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> nope. That's, 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 exactly, that's what we got to tell ourselves in the review process, right? This is just going to get better from this. It's okay. Exactly. Um, I feel that the multi-method kind of aspects to your paper probably really did help it get through. But what do you think about the Instagram data? In hindsight, you know, you might not have been all in on, on the first first take of it. Um <laughs> Or kind of even just like the increase in the news, popular press, media of virtual reality. Do you think that had an impact on how easy it went through at JMR? You know, I would like to think it didn't. <laughs> but I mean, I think it made it more broadly relevant. So I, it, it makes sense to me that, you know, we are an applied and theoretical discipline. And the application was so much wider now with the new data that I'm sure it probably did have an impact, even though I thought it was really interesting before that. I feel like that Instagram data made it much more broadly relevant, and I'm sure it helped. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, we're looking theoretical contributions, which you, that probably the theoretical contribution didn't change all that much, even from the very first version of, you know, the seminar paper, Andrea, that you wrote. But the substantiveness, both in what the data you actually had to support it, but also just in terms of how relevant it was topically uh, at the time, both probably helped to move it along. So my favorite thing to do in these podcasts now is kind of think about if I was teaching a PhD seminar and I had some students, you know, thinking about questions, they'd be like, I wish I could ask the authors this, you know, what would the PhD students want to ask? So a couple of things that came to my mind as I was reading your paper again, Andrea, this mechanism of body ownership, not something I was super familiar with prior to your paper or that I've seen a lot in the literature. How did you come up with this idea for, for body ownership being the mechanism? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we did not develop the idea of body ownership. It's actually been highly studied in the literature. So this is not new to us. Um, there's quite a, a massive literature around feeling ownership of one's body or even of virtual bodies. And there's really kind of classic and an intriguing work on like the rubber hand illusion where people can actually kind of mentally transport into a rubber or a, a, a fake hand and make it feel as if it's, you know, your own body. So there's enough evidence to suggest that people can make this, this transfer, right, to a, a different entity. But what's really novel about what we do in this paper is that we suggest that 
virtual touch, right? Just seeing a hand touch a product facilitates that process, right? That we don't just automatically necessarily uh, feel as if virtual limbs are our own, but what is really different about what we're suggesting is that the touch itself is something that increases the likelihood that this will occur. Okay. So it's it's not something that you developed, of course, from scratch. It's been in that literature, something that a literature area that I'm not particularly familiar with. Um, but that there's idea of this body ownership, particularly you're saying virtual, right? Um, and that just makes me feel that it's more likely to kind of be part of mine or part of that body ownership. Exactly. And then, you know, the theoretical arguments that we're making is that this touch facilitates the sense of body ownership or the feeling that, you know, that hand is mine. And that leads to the sense that you feel as if the product is yours. So this sense of psychological ownership. And psychological ownership is something that, you know, Joanne and I have both studied as well uh, extensively. Joanne kind of brought the notion of psychological ownership into the marketing literature. And so the feeling that you can, you know, feel as if this product is yours uh, in the marketing literature, we had never considered in the psychological ownership literature that body ownership might be an antecedent to that. Right. That actually feeling body ownership could actually kind of lead to feeling psychological ownership. And so uh, this study is also one of the first studies that really draws that linkage and makes that connection as well. Yes. And that's, I think, a really important link um, that your paper shows, because psychological ownership, that was something at least I was you know already familiar with. We think about uh, endowment effect. Right. But. It's not just the psychological piece there. You need that body ownership when it's that vicarious to get to that psychological, right? Is a really interesting link that you show. Now, you do mention a little bit in the paper about potentially getting a negative effect, right? Because there is this other literature stream on contamination. And if someone else has touched it, it's kind of dirty, right? Like it's contaminated and we don't want it. So you, like I said, you do talk about this briefly in the paper. When you started out, did you ever think like, seeing someone else touch a product is going to have a negative effect or are we always kind of predicting it to be positive? So, so we did consider that, but then our theory of body ownership is, well, if you think it's someone else's hand, you may think that there is contamination, but if it feels like it's your own hand, then we wouldn't expect contamination. So we really didn't think contamination would be an issue. We thought reviewers might ask us about that. But we've decided we should test it just to make sure that our theory would hold, and it did. So, But it is something good to consider when you think about this idea of seeing a hand touch a product. If it's not your own, it may be contaminated, but if it's your own, you don't feel that way. Yeah, and that's where that body ownership becomes so important to get to the psychological um, ownership exactly. piece. Awesome. And it's actually, it's it's also really nice when, you know, an effect could go either way, right? When you can set up these almost competing hypotheses, right? If one theory or one literature would suggest one thing and another theory would suggest something else, then that's empirically testable, right? And so that's essentially what we did as well. And I don't think we ever really thought that contamination would occur um, because we really did believe the theory that we were setting forward. Uh, but it was a nice test of that. Yeah. But you're spot on for, you know, PhD students or anytime we're developing an idea. I'm like, well, if it goes this way, that's cool. And if it goes this way, that's cool. And if it's flat, yeah, <laughs> kind of out of luck, right? And it often <laughs> right. is flat and we move on. Um, but in this case, you kind of felt that positive effect would likely be there. And it was. 
Um, so you have a couple moderators that you look at in there. One was this like di- the diagnosticity of the hand movement, right? I'm just curious, you know, whenever you read a paper and you see these different moderators and you think, was that in there all the time? Or did you put that in there because reviewers asked? So what's the truth on that one? Did you put that in there the whole way? Or did you add that in later because reviewers asked for it? You know, we had a version of this uh, early on in the manuscript, but one of the things that surprised us about this vicarious haptic effect uh, was really its stickiness. And we tried so hard to move and push this effect around with different moderators, and it just persisted uh, time and time again. And so this is one of the stories with this paper, which is that um, we ran study after study after study trying to turn this effect off. Uh, That's why the web appendix has so many studies. (laughs) (laughs) It holds under this condition. It holds under that condition. It also holds under these conditions. Exactly. Exactly. And we can enumerate all of those for you if you're really interested. (laughs) Um, But no, it's really true. We tried over and over again to moderate this effect, and it really didn't happen easily. And it wasn't until we created a moderator that was really, like, really pushed the bounds of, of realism in terms of the type of touch being used where it would turn this effect off. So, you know, in the paper, we have a hand like knocking on a sweater, which again, it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, You know, from just a, you know, a practical standpoint, Uh, but it was really theory testing, right? How far could we push this effect and still see it remain? And under those conditions, no, we cannot. It's not a diagnostic or meaningful form of touch. And so, you know, we attenuate the effect there, but, but it was amazing how sticky this effect really was. Yeah. That's interesting, right? And that's something that we don't often get to see in the final part. Maybe if we read all the studies in the web appendix, it gives us some clue to it. Um, But that there might have been a lot of moderators tested and they didn't work, but didn't work in the sense of like, it's a strong effect. It's a sticky effect. It's very robust, right? So you needed this diagnosticity to actually have a context when it does turn off, when it no longer kind of matters. I won't make you go through all of the different moderators you tried, but I am curious the blue hand i was surprised i was like blue hand that's not gonna work and it did can you talk a little bit about that i don't know if joanne or andrea want to take this one yeah absolutely i mean this is also that was our initial reaction as well right if we can get this uh, effect to work even with a disembodied a floating blue hand then this again shows just how robust this effect is Um, And we did, right? We can still see that a blue hand touching a a shirt as opposed to not touching the shirt is is more effective for fostering body ownership and and enhancing product evaluation. So again, we were also surprised, but it just speaks to the robustness of this effect. I just want to add to one other of the moderator's story. So we had this idea of perspective would matter, this egocentric or allocentric perspective. So if it's egocentric, it would seem more that body ownership would be greater. It would feel more like your hand than if you're looking on from this allocentric perspective. And the first time we ran that study, we got the effect. So originally, that was a great moderator. But then we tried to replicate it several times, and we could not replicate the effect. And we never want to publish anything that can't be replicated. So it was disappointing because it seemed like it should work. We had a a beautiful effect once and then just couldn't get it to work again. So that's why it's relegated to the web appendix as yet another 
moderator that didn't work the way we had expected to work. Yeah. So that was disappointing. Right. Because it was an interesting, exciting one to offer. But because, so, you know, yeah. because it wasn't as consistent and robust in moderating it, you didn't want to have it in there. And that's obviously the right choice. Um, so want to have that consistency and confidence and replication um, before publishing it. Well, it sounds like even though the start of this publication process, you know, the review process early on might have been a little bit painful, which I think we've all experienced. Um, and if we haven't yet, I think you'll get there. Um, but some lessons kind of learned from this process. Joanne, what do you think? Any, you know, obviously you're very experienced here. You've learned a lot, I'm sure. But what did you kind of take away from this review process or the project more generally? So I, I think a couple things is um, this importance of resilience or bounce back ability. Like I have been rejected from the best journals. And I think that happens for a lot of people. So, you know, if you really believe in a project, you have to learn from the reviews, make it better and don't give up. So I think that also speaks to the importance of really believing in a project and working on something you're passionate about, because you're probably going to be working on it for quite a few years. So I think, and the other part of this is in your career, you have papers that you like better than others. And this is one paper that I really like. So I think I took it sort of personally when it kept getting rejected. But I think the reason that I thought it was so great is because it has that substantive contribution, but also the theoretical contribution. So it's just been one of those papers that I've always really loved and I never really wanted to give up on it. Yeah, but you persisted, right? You persisted and you, and you won. Uh, we see it in print now and only being out for a year, a little over, but uh, doing fantastic, getting sites and also getting attention in the press. Andrea, something that you started with again very early in your PhD program, but then, you know, numerous years out, you actually get it published. Thoughts on this kind of experience in the process? You know, what I will add is that um, Joanne's exactly right. Kind of perseverance with ideas is critical. Um, another piece of things that I really want to highlight um, is just the, the co-author team that actually put this paper together. Um, the paper would not be what it is today without Joanne Peck, who's here with us today, without Bill Hedgecock, and without Yixiang Zhu. All four of us worked incredibly diligently on this project. Everyone contributed just a ton of intellectual energy to it. And, yes. and really, most importantly, you know, we had fun in the process. So <laughs> this is one thing we actually like to say a lot. You know, research is supposed to be fun. Um, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. So, <laughs> so we just had like the best time, you know, even through the rejections, through the difficult moments, through all of the failed moderator studies, um, <laughs> you know, it was just a really, really fun process. And I owe that a lot to my colleagues. And so, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this podcast and, and really what you're trying to, to do with it. And I thought it was interesting because it's called How I Wrote This. But I think, you know, today it's really how we wrote this. And I think that that's really the big takeaway from me is that it's it's a team effort. And I just had a really amazing team around me. That's awesome, Andrea. I love that. How, how we wrote this, right? So we can see that with the Instagram data, right, that you said um, Isha had helped with a lot and collected for you, really strengthened it. And all uh, Bill's work with the VR, um, the touch experts, Joanne uh, and Andrea, you having the original idea from the very start uh, together, collectively, you, you know, we wrote this. So 
that's a fantastic way, I think, to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Joanne and Andrea, for being with us today. Um, really happy to get your insights on what might not have started out like a great process, but you persevered. And if you haven't already checked out uh, Vicarious Haptic Touch, I encourage you to do so.